0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is the morning after, of course, uh, the some of the most important primaries of 2022. And of course, uh, the latest horrific tragedy out of Texas. And I, I have to confess that um, I still have a little bit of PTSD from all my years doing talk radio. The shows I hated the most were the shows after a mass killing because... You immediately wind into this doom loop of cliches, rationalizations, talking points, dumb ideas, and the futility of it really weighs on you as well as the as this the scope of of the horror uh, trying to wrap your minds around twenty one uh, dead in an elementary school, nineteen children, two teachers, twenty one worlds destroyed, and, I think in order to maintain some sort of perspective, don't spend a lot of time on Twitter watching people going back and forth about all of this because it, it's the it, it's it's the immediate descent into um, one of the most futile debates that we have. And let me just start off with this. And and I understand the people who are saying, you know, let's let's start fighting. We need to fight all of this. And I I don't disagree that we need to do something about it. It's just. And maybe it's my ingrained cynicism, or maybe it's just the experience of seeing this happening over and over and over again. The folks at The Recount put together a montage of all the times presidents of the United States have addressed school shootings. And it just feels once again like we're in kind of a groundhog day of tragedy. Let's play this. Hillary and I are profoundly Shocked Shock and, and saddened by the tragedy today in Littleton, in Southern California. By the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech. Roseburg, Oregon. It's an elementary school in New- Newton, in Texas. Parkland, Florida, Michigan. The prayers of the American people are with you. We are praying for them. Laura and I, and many across our nation. Our entire nation, with one heavy heart, is praying, praying for, for the victims, victims and, their and their families. And it's not just Littleton. We know that now. We've had lots and lots and lots of places. We have been through this too many times. Too many years, too many decades now. As I said just a few months ago, and I said a few months before that, and I said each time we see one of these mass shootings, our thoughts and prayers are not enough. Mm -hmm. Schools should be places of safety and sanctuary and learning. Perhaps now America would wake up to the dimensions of this challenge if it could happen in a place like Littleton and we could prevent anything like this from happening again. <sighs> so joining me on the podcast today to go over all of this, including uh, the the takes from the primary elections, uh, Lucy Caldwell, a good friend, a political strategist, member of the advisory board at the Renew Democracy Initiative, founder of Mockingbird, an audience intelligence platform who also Managed Joe Walsh's 2020 presidential campaign. So uh, happy Wednesday, Lucy.
1: Good to be with you, Charlie. Albeit on a tough news day.
0: It is a tough news day, and and again, you you look look at the at the list of school shootings: Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and now in Texas. I, I guess you know part of it is the. I I don't know. Am am, am I too cynical to think that, you know, that hanging over all of this is the pretty certain knowledge that nothing nothing is going to be done about all of this and that it's going to happen again. So it's been 20 years that people have been saying thoughts and prayers is not enough, which is right. But I don't see this moving the needle. Look, I mean, the bottom line for me is that if the if the slaughter of the innocents in Sandy Hook did not move this nation into action, then I think it's naive to think that this will.
1: Yeah, I get that. And I noticed yesterday morning that you had posted a recent column that yeah. was taking aim at Buffalo, right? And that is column is already out of date because we now have a more horrific shooting, right? It's for a right. country that has such a can-do attitude about everything. We are sure making thoughts and prayers our national pastime. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say here. I, I've been thinking about this on this issue, on a lot of issues, when I think about how we could ever get out of this horrible political purgatory we seem to be in. And I've thought, what would happen if we just agreed, look, we're all, it's not what each, it's not the pet issue of each of ours, but we're just going to accept what most Americans want on a whole bunch of issues, right? What would you get? You know, on abortion, you would get something pretty moderate. You'd get like reasonable limitations, but basically no abortions after you know, 15 to 20 weeks. On immigration, you'd get, yeah, we don't want to have open borders, but we want to have legal and accessible immigration to bring more people into this country as part of our commitment to the American melting pot. And on guns, you would actually get a lot of consensus on a whole bunch of issues around this topic that, for whatever reason, in this political climate just seem completely out of touch. You would get, wide-scale background checks. You would get red flag laws with teeth. You would get an acknowledgement of the nexus between gun violence and mental health, but without stigmatizing all mentally ill people who are mostly not (laughs) mass shooters. And you would also get things like either bans on assault weapons or the idea that it should be left up to the states. And so it's really frustrating on any of these issues, but especially this one, of thinking where the American people are and then where political actors are.
0: Well, I I think, you know, one of the questions that I saw that you uh, retweeted Will Wilkinson about this, you know, is, is this... Is this the price that we are willing to pay for um, Second Amendment absolutism? I mean, are we as a country willing to accept that you know, as the price of freedom, uh, every once in a while we're going to have uh, a dozen or, or two dozen children who are massacred. Is, is, this, is this acceptable? Um, because we we apparently have decided, uh, whether consciously or not that we we do accept it and because it goes on and on and on and you know an 18 year old with an ar-15 can go in and he can get himself past uh, armed guards he can go into a classroom and essentially kill everyone in just a matter of moments and i guess Part of my frustration about this doom loop is, you know, you're going to have, you know, the 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 usual arguments. You'll be, well, we just need to have, you know, armored backpacks. Right. You know, fourth graders with armored backpacks or or we need more good guys with guns. In this particular case, there were good guys with guns and they were not able to stop him before he killed all of these children and, and, and the teachers. And in Buffalo, you had a good guy with a gun. Uh, who fired at, uh, at at the shooter, who was wearing body armor. The reality is, you know, that despite all the rhetoric about backing the blue and being the party of law and order, the police are outgunned under these circumstances. You know, putting a gun in the hand of every single teacher, by the way, you know, up until five minutes ago, you know, conservatives were saying, you know, that the teachers need to be monitored because they were all groomers and and, and propagandists, but now we want to get guns, but whatever this notion is is just incredibly naive when you think about it so i you know i i would like to think that there's going to be some common sense you know legislation about you know ar15s about you know the size of how much ammunition they 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 can carry the background checks and everything but there's this absolutist now that no we're not going to do anything even if it will lead to this I mean and, and that's that's what's so frustrating about it and I, I would look, I'm gonna confess the whole sandy Hook thing kind of broke me. It's you know w- way before Trump came along, that was one of those moments where it's like no i'm I'm sorry if 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 this is what the team is willing to ex- i'm I'm off, I'm off the team
1: yeah so. it's a it's a fetish. It's a fetish. It's a gun fetish. and the fetish has no end. I mean, the fetish extends to the idea that the solution is is to just sort of ramp up who's armed and how armed <sighs> we are. Should we have school safety officers with AR-15s? I mean, what's what's the line?
0: Well, no. I mean, if you're going to have a school safety officers, they have to have the same kind of firepower. They have to have you know the body armors that we're willing to expect. By the way, you talked about the fetish. I, I know I'm going to get some blowback on it, but you know, in my newsletter this morning, I made a modest request to just stop the fetish with guns, you know, like Thomas Massey, you know, posing at Christmas with the weapons, uh, Lauren Boebert or Ted Cruz making machine gun bacon, treating these guns, you know, as if they are somehow toys or signs of manhood or, you know, tribal loyalty. Can we just stop with that at least? If gun owners really are all about, you know, being serious and safe and everything, could you just fucking act like it once in a while?
1: You know, it would also be nice if we could stop acting like a reasonable law-abiding gun owner who likes to hunt and, you know, own guns for sport, has any legitimate reason to own an AR-15. And I I don't mean that to say that I'm saying they should all immediately, it should be made illegal for them to own it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, why would you... Want to own that. And if you look back in the recent history of gun ownership in this country, that has exploded. That is a recent, recent development. And you can look back to, say, the Obama years, where suddenly you had this just run on of people going out, getting these crazy, frankly, weapons that are meant to imitate weapons of war. That no reasonable sportsman would own. You can't use an AR fifteen on a on a elk hunt, right? You don't want venison that's been had, you know, a bullet blasted through it, and that would ruin the meat. So the arguments being made are stupid, and it is because at the core here there is a Second Amendment fetish that has infected many people in this country.
0: No, I I agree. You know who I'd like to hear more from on this? I do think that we need to hear more from law enforcement. I mean, police are outgunned. You know, and are they okay with people walking around with AR-15s and body armor? Um, Will Salatin in the in the bulwark has a very interesting post here. You know, and he quotes uh Someone is saying, I own guns, I'm a conservative, but like many law enforcement officers and those who've been in the profession, we don't like to see you know, these dangerous weapons in the hands of people who are not law enforcement. And then Will writes, if 19 children and two teachers had died in an elementary school after budget cuts to the local police department, House and Senate Republicans wouldn't be begging for common ground. They'd be in front of every camera and microphone today, pounding Democrats for defunding police. But instead, These children died after Republicans in the name of law-abiding gun owners blocked legislation that might have prevented this tragedy and kept this shooter, among others, from outgunning the cops. And for that, they should be called what they are, enemies of law and order. So you you mentioned my column. You know, I was talking about Buffalo, how how conservatives have become, uh, and Republicans have become very soft and squishy on terrorism. They are blocking domestic terrorism legislation. I think they also ought to be held up as, as as weak on law and order. And for all of their rhetoric about supporting uh, the police, are police really OK with this? And I don't think they are, because the reality is you put a police officer in front of that school with uh, with an 18-year-old in an AR-15 in body armor, and that man or woman has no chance. They won't survive that.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the loudest voices on the need for some action on gun violence have been have been people like Art Acevedo who you know is the former yes. Austin chief of police he ran California Highway Patrol um nationally prominent law enforcement guy and he's out there saying we've got to do something about this if you're a policeman or a member of law enforcement why would you want the the general citizenry to be carrying around AR-15s. I mean, look, I get the well-regulated militia thing for you know the Second Amendment fans listening. And uh, again, I would point out, well-regulated is. It's we can- right <laughs> there.
0: It's in <laughs> right. the amendment. The words if we right. can't have any regulation of guns. There should be no restrictions. Constitutional carry. The words right. well-regulated are right. The freak there.
1: Right. If <laughs> if you if you want to you know be a close reading textualist, we can do that <laughs> all day long. Right. But. So, yes, I get the idea. I get the general premise of the idea of, again, a well-regulated militia. But if you are a law enforcement officer pulling someone over, right, or going about your job in the in a law-abiding, upstanding way, the idea that you might actually be about to do door knock on the, and someone's going to open the door and have a you know, semi-automatic weapon pointing at you in your right, an AR-15, whatever it is, that's a little dicey. (laughs) I can't imagine that that's something they want.
0: Well, no. And also, you know, in some states, including in in Ohio, uh, they recently passed legislation not just allowing people to carry, you know, a concealed weapon um, with a permit and training, but to carry concealed weapons without any sort of permitting, without any sort of background check, without any sort of training. Is this is, is this something that local police departments think is a good idea? Does this enhance law enforcement? Uh, okay, so we, um, you know, again, we're going to have all of this rhetoric, lots of heavy breathing. We need to do something and nothing will get done. And that's why I, I'm in a bad mood. And that's why I'm sorry. Yeah. I just, it, it, is, it is profoundly depressing. I think, I mean, look, at this is a time for grief. It's also a time for incandescent anger. But I'm, I'm aware incandescent anger that will accomplish what? And I'm I'm not trying to, to discourage people. I'm just saying that, you know, when you think about how often this has happened and how little we have done about it, it is it is a national shame. OK, so, Lucy, we had major uh, primaries last night. I wanted to start with this, but uh, I want to walk through what happened, because I'm going to argue that last night was a really, 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 really bad night for, in particular, Donald Trump's big lie. But let's talk about that right after this. Let me tell you a story from last week. The folks from Eden Pure sent me some samples of their thunderstorm air cleaning ozone system. I had to say that I wasn't sure how this was going to work because they're very light and compact and somewhat small. And my wife was a little bit skeptical. I have to tell you, I was blown away by this product. The proven oxy technology destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of all allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again. I put one in a downstairs bathroom and the other in our bedroom. And I have to tell you, it has completely changed the environment of the entire house. There is that sense of ozone. I said to my wife the other day, I said, just come upstairs. I want to show you something. We start walking up the stairs and I said, you notice that? She goes, wow. I wasn't expecting that because it feels like all the windows were open and you could feel the sea breeze coming into the house. I cannot believe how effective this is. It freshens your house, gets rid of the odors like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, diapers, cooking smell, and more. And there have been more than 200,000 of these thunderstorms sold. So, you know, it works but you are going to be really surprised about how it just changes the entire environment of your house. It's not just that you never breathe dirty air again or you don't have filters to buy. Doesn't take up any floor space. It just plugs directly into the wall. It's nearly completely silent. So it is great for use in bedrooms and it comes with a six foot USB cord. You can take it with you to travel for clean, fresh air in hotel rooms. And it's not in the same category as other air freshers. Take my word for that. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, discount code CHARLIE3, the number three, to save $200. That's three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200, and the shipping is free. Okay, so we are back with my good friend Lucy Caldwell. So in terms of hot takes on the primary, you pick a race. What was your biggest surprise last night? And I'm, I'm guessing we'll probably be on the same page here.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I'm not surprised by anything anymore. <laughs> biggest surprise. I Okay. So I, I actually think the biggest insight came from Georgia. Yep. And it is the way that you can crawl your way back into the good graces of the Trump crowd, even if you've stood against them. And that was in the Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Secretary of State's race to keep his Secretary of State ship. Yeah, And and I kept thinking, I was looking at the returns on a county-by-county county level, and I kept thinking, well, there must be an answer. <laughs> it, we, we must be able to see that, you know, he, he loses vote share as you get further out from, say, Atlanta, which he did, but that did not account for the swath of voters who last night went to the polls and voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene oh. and Brad Raffensperger. <laughs>
0: okay, okay. This is this is a this, you made a couple of great points. First of all, I, I think the biggest shock was was Brad Raffensperger not just winning, but winning outright in the primary, yeah. getting more than 50% of the vote. When he was absolutely written off for dead a couple of months ago, um, I think just yesterday on one of our secret podcasts, we were talking about the the, the two you know most likely scenarios, which is that Jody Heiss would, uh, w- would win or that Brad Raffensberger would somehow be able to force a runoff. None of that happened. He actually won despite all of the things he did against Trump. But as you also point out, and this is what makes it so hard to parse through all of this, you had voters that went into the voting booth and voted for Marjorie Taylor Greene, Herschel Walker, and then Brad Raffensperger. So what do, you, what do you make of all of this?
1: Brad Raffensperger is no Liz Cheney. Brad Raffensperger is no Adam Kinzinger. And a lot has happened between November of 2020, January 6, 2021, and now. And one of the things that has happened is that Brad, And that's why we haven't been paying attention nationally, right? But you would know it if you were a voter in Georgia. And that is that Brad Raffensperger has quietly managed to thread the needle of continuing to kind of be in good graces with the national Never Trump crowd, kind of Twitter crowd, while also groveling to Georgians and groveling to the Trump machinery. Was that going to put him over the edge last night? Like, Was he going to get a Trump endorsement? No, but Brad Raffensperger, a person who was personally targeted, experienced threats to his family, his own life, who did the right thing in 2020, you know, against huge, huge pressure. And we've all heard the phone call of Donald Trump asking Brad Raffensperger to go find votes. And then Brad Raffensperger is watching everything that we're watching. He's watching the insurrection. He has this personal experience And then you know what he did? He went out and he gave a bunch of interviews saying that he would not rule out voting for Trump again. How could you ever do that?
0: (laughs) I find that incomprehensible. But in the defense of Brad Raffensperger, look, uh, and and this is with all kinds of, you know, caveats and asterisks here. Look, uh, the post-Trump Republican Party, if there ever is going to be one, um, is not going to be liberal. It is not going to be um, non-Trumpist, but it is going to be, one hopes, uh, a rejection of the big lie. And the thing about Brad Raffensberger is that he put everything on the line. Uh, and and what you had last night in Georgia was this overwhelming repudiation, at least uh, statewide, of, of the big lie, not of Trumpism writ larger, all the other policies, but very specifically of the big lie. And it really was also a repudiation of I thought it was interesting that Chris Christie tweeted this out yeah. of the Trump vendetta tour. I mean, Trump invested a huge amount of effort, psychic effort, rhetoric, even money into the effort to uh, unseat Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger was really public enemy number one. And not only did Kemp win, Kemp, I think, got a higher percentage of the vote in the primary against uh, David Perdue than Herschel Walker got. I mean, it was a just an absolute blowout. So this is why I think it's hard to parse it out. Clearly, you have the Republican voters are still Trumpist, but is there a legitimate distinction between being Trumpist and being willing to reject Donald Trump himself when it comes to the big lie? Because that seems to me to be significant. So this is not the end of Trumpism, but at least on the big lie, I don't know how it could have been clearer last night.
1: Well, there's another factor that we haven't touched on, and that's Mike Pence. and. I feel as though, well, I don't feel as though I have seen around the country in talking with folks who are probably still working in Republican politics, where privately Joe Biden voters are people who like work at chambers of commerce, st- stakeholders, people who are stakeholders. They all see Mike Pence as their horse. They see that Mike Pence is a guy who wants to restore decency, did the right thing, you know, is solid, could take us back to the way things were, you know, asterisks, TM, whatever. And Mike Pence going to Georgia, I think, I think that had a big impact. I mean, he had a big impact on the Kemp race. I think that created a really? permission structure for mm-hmm. Republican primary voters there.
0: Yeah, I think it did. So I think that was a positive development. Now, if you want a grimmer view of what's going on in Republican politics, let's switch to uh, Texas, where the deeply deplorable um, and uh, indicted uh, incumbent attorney general Ken Paxton uh, absolutely shellacked uh, George P. Bush. Give me give me your take on, on all of that. How a guy, see, I, I actually don't understand how Ken Paxton, who is, I, I think, arguably the worst attorney general in America, who's actually been indicted. First of all, I mean, what's ever happened with this indictment? It's been around forever. And yet the guy not only wins re-election, he, he wins easily over a member of the Bush dynasty who thought maybe voters might care about the corruption. Apparently not.
1: Well, George P. Bush is... So pathetic. There's just so, no other way so to describe pathetic. it. Yes. The 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 tweets with the image of the koozie floating around uh, that he put out as campaign swag last year that is like literally a picture. It's a little drawing of Bush and Trump. And there's a caption with a quote from Donald Trump about how George P. Bush is the only Bush who likes him and the only good one and the only one we can trust. I mean, that is
0: that's like some cringe level cringe. Oh, it is next level cringe, absolutely. And because uh, they, just you know, parenthetically, though, this willingness of people to utterly humiliate themselves. I mean, David Perdue, at the end of the day, is talked into running for governor by by Trump, who kept calling him. He thought that the Trump endorsement was some sort of you know magic you know wand or something, and he just grovels and he buys the big lie and. Now he is just absolutely stomped. And there's George W. Bush, who actually has this. I'm looking at it right now, the picture of the, of the beer cozy, you know, with these, you know, sucking up to Donald Trump, who had humiliated, you know, other members of his family. And what does he have to show for it?
1: The quote on the koozie is also the quote on the koozie is like so lukewarm,
0: right? This is, like, this is the only like, Bush that likes me. This is the Bush that got it right. I like him. Donald I J. like Trump. Him. Okay. Yeah. This is the only <laughs> Bush that likes me. So he not only he not only does this utterly next level cringy sucking up thing, but he does it at the expense of all of the other members of his family, because Trump is basically, you know, throwing shade on. Every one of his other, you know, members of the Bush family. What a, I'm sorry, pathetic.
1: Yeah, I know. I think that when you look at, okay, so a couple of things. One about all of these people, including David Perdue in Georgia. I really think we don't name enough the fact that the vast majority of politicians are psychopaths. They are psychopaths. They are not motivated (laughs) by normal stuff.
0: Really? The vast majority. majority? It explains a lot. Okay, it
1: does explain a lot. So, one of the things that I found when I was coming of age, as I'm sure a lot of people did, is that a thing that was a real relief about becoming a grown up person is that I was not subjected to, you know, like school, uh, sort of schoolyard BS about who's popular, who's in, who's out. Imagine being a person who wants to have a life where every two to four years, you have to win a popularity contest. I mean, you yes, we have some wonderful statesmen and all of that, but you really have to have something in your wiring to want to be subjected to that. That is weird stuff. So that helps explain why someone like David Perdue would be so willing to humiliate himself. And also, like Trump, Another thing that makes another layer of all politicians are psychopaths is they also crave attention in a really unhealthy, bizarre way. And so for Purdue, you know, he may be feeling a little humiliated today, but he may also just still be feeling the rush from the fact that people are talking about him. I would say about Paxton, I think the key to Paxton's success last night comes from something that is really really nefarious about this Republican party and this Republican voter base which is that Donald Trump and Trumpism as an era has so eroded our the sort of republicans on the whole their their commitment to the rule of law and their notion of and, and like growing distrust in the government and structures beyond healthy distrust of government that things like the indictment, the investigation into Paxton, that doesn't mean anything to them anymore because these Republicans just say like, yes, it's the deep state. Yes, it's the, you know, mainstream media. It's the, you know, left wing apparatus. So it's that's scary. That's frightening.
0: Well, I think I it's hard to argue with that. And I think you're you're starting to see that. That uh, there's a rationalization for anything that they have they have made themselves absolutely immune to any of these uh, forms of accountability. But can I, I go back to something you said because it really struck me that that what you you said that one of the good things about growing up was that you weren't subjected to the kind of pettiness of middle school and the, the playground and who's popular and everything. Yeah, um, you know. I remember I, I felt the same way as well, that, that you're an adult and now people are you know, behaving in a certain you know, reasonable manner. And, you know, there, there isn't there isn't the kind of, you know, pettiness and the cruelty and the back and all of that sort of thing. And I think that's one of the depressing things about politics today, because it feels like being back on the seventh grade playground, surrounded by the worst, dumbest kids, the worst, most vicious kids. And it's like I thought I was past that. You know what I mean? I, I just I, I I just I think that with, that that in order to understand so much of what's going on, you know, particularly uh, even on social media, you're talking about this, you know, so uh, the uh, psychopaths in politics. But even on social media, I mean, it really does feel like you're back in the junior high lunchroom.
1: Yeah. And we could typecast each of the winners and losers of last night into their roles on the playground.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, Alabama, Um, Alabama, uh, Mo Brooks uh, did not surge as much as maybe it was thought, but he made the runoff, you know, despite the fact that he was thrown under the bus by Donald Trump. Here's another one of those weird parsing moments where Mo Brooks is still as Trumpy as you could possibly get, still buys the big lie. I saw him uh, on uh, an MSNBC yesterday. He was being interviewed by Vaughn Hilliard. By the way, people should look this up. It was amazing. He's citing Dinesh D'Souza's bullshit new movie, 2000 Mules. He's all in there. But he survived without and maybe in spite of Donald Trump, who called him woke. So again, we have this cognitive dissonance between Trump rejecting dropping his endorsement of Mo Brooks, but Mo Brooks finding a way to be the Trumpiest candidate in that race. Is that the way you see it?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think another factor in that race is Mike Durant, who was another Republican candidate in that Senate primary, who wound up with 23 plus percent of the vote last night and was the person that the can't we just can't we just make it nice again um, crowd really hoped could come through. I shouldn't say that. I think Katie Britt, who got 44% of the vote, is really more like the, can we just make it nice again, Mitch McConnell kind of mm-hmm. candidate. Mike Durant was trying to thread the needle to look more like, say, a Will Hurd or an Adam Kinzinger or you know some of the going extinct <laughs> version of a Republican elected. So I think that it's hard to say what's going to happen in Alabama because of what a big vote share someone like Durant got. Where do those people go?
0: Well, he says says he's going to support Mo Brooks now. You know,
1: yeah, it's insane. Um,
0: (laughs) My impression of Mike Durant was different than the way you just described him because you know after Trump unendorsed Mo Brooks. Durant put out a statement saying, hey, I'm the guy that believes the big lie. I'm the guy. Absolutely. This election was stolen. Uh, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, I did this. And apparently that was not enough. So, yeah, that's right. I'm I'm looking at that and seeing the you had together the Mo Brooks and and Durant vote and and you're still getting a pretty strong. That's the Trump constituency. That's the people. That's the big lie constituency still in Alabama.
1: Well, yeah, that's fair to say about Durant. I mean, he, he had there are like shades of Raffensperger here or. Maybe that's harsh on on Ravensburger. There are shades shades. Can you tell I'm just fed up with every single one of these people? There are uh, shades of J d Vance, right? Because he tried the ok, I don't like the way things are going thing. And then Hail Mary was, ok, maybe things are going fine. Go all in. I guess that's that's what I mean about where do his votes go and and what does it mean for the kind of our our longer term outlook? About who these folks in Alabama elsewhere are putting up as their Senate nominees.
0: Okay, let's talk about Arkansas. This was not a, a competitive race, but uh, Sarah Huckabee looks like she's on track to be the governor of Arkansas. Uh, and her main qualification seems to be that uh, she's you know the you know her father's daughter, and she spent 18 months uh, lying for Donald Trump as the press secretary, and now she's a MAGA star, isn't she?
1: Yeah, she is, and there's a not visible piece of the Sarah Huckabee Sanders story, which I'm kind of tuned into, but that is who is the team around her and who are the operatives around these people? I think a thing that is really going to be clear in the fall and is clear in these primaries, but is going to really come into clear view when we're looking back on 2022 on a whole is It's going to keep getting worse. And there are still Republicans in office, especially governors, who are term limited, where they could not, if they were not term limited, they would not be reelected today. Mm -hmm. And that means a couple of things. One of those things means that people like, say, Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, who is not exactly a never-Trumper, but is another example Mm -hmm of a Republican who pushed back against Trump. That means that the operative class of these folks, they need somewhere to go. And I've noticed that on the Sanders team, she has a whole bunch of operatives, including a very senior former Ducey staffer who stood by Doug Ducey when he was standing up against the big lie. And they're all in with Sanders now. And I think that you're gonna see behind the scenes... A realignment of the operative class who have to find their new meal ticket. And that's going to be really terrible. I'm seeing that in Michigan, seeing that all over the country, that these Trump Republicans are going to not only get more organized and better and better, they're also going to have better teams that make that possible.
0: Well, but that's that's following the money, right? I mean, as long as the donor, the donor class supports this sort of thing, that's where the money is. But this is a a subject for another podcast, you know, the changing of the guard, how it is going to get so much worse. I keep thinking about what a Republican dominated Senate will look like. You think the Senate is bad now? Imagine what it's going to look like. But also the governorships you mentioned, you know, the Doug Duseys are going to be gone. The Larry Hogan's are going to be gone. uh, The Charlie Baker's are going to be gone as Republicans. Now, in in some of those states, um, you know, that means the Republicans will lose the governorship. But the parties have been quite radicalized. Every state party, as far as I can see, has been has been radicalized in the last four years.
1: Your state, Charlie, today, Wednesday, is. The The Wisconsin Elections Commission, which for people who don't know, Wisconsin doesn't have the Secretary of State kind of apparatus of other states, is going to take a vote, this, you know, multi-member commission, on whether or not to make a person who was one of Trump's fake electors the new chair of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. I mean, this is not going anywhere good. We can maybe parse some... Um, Positives here and there from a Kemp win, a Raffensburger win, sure, maybe even someone like Katie Britt. But on the whole, the the train is still headed down the tracks. and American democracy is lying in the tracks waiting to be run over.
0: ok. I, we don't have enough time to get really into this, but I mean, there is a case to be made that despite the radicalization and the trumpification of these parties, that Donald Trump's hold on the party is loosening. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm buying this, but I want to, want to bounce something off you. I was actually thinking of, of some bad analogies last night. I mean, he's still got a firm grip on the steering wheel, but, but, you know, the steering wheel is getting a little bit loose now. So you mentioned Wisconsin. The state Republican Party has become very, very, very weirdly Trumpified here. But they had a convention over the weekend and they had a straw poll Keeping in mind what straw polls mean, but Ron DeSantis beat Trump in a straw poll, thirty-eight uh, percent to thirty-two percent, and Nikki Haley finished third with seven percent. Um, I, I mention this because Henry Olson, uh, you know, cited this in in his column in the Washington Post, where he's also pointing out that that you know that look, these people are are they would all vote for Trump if he was the nominee. There's no question about it, but you are starting to see a larger percentage of Republicans say that they are Republicans first rather than, you know, Trump supporters first. So again, is there a legitimate distinction between Trumpists who are willing to move on from Trump himself? Is that a confusing question?
1: No, but I think that it makes me think of something that I've felt for a long time, which is that it was possible that Trumpism would outgrow Trump. Yeah. And sort of Ron happened. DeSantis is a great example of that. You know, the Josh Hawley's of the world scare me so much more than Donald Trump. I hope Donald Trump is the nominee in 2024. Ooh, I careful. hope that.
0: Yeah. Well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> really. Oh man, Nem- nemesis is hanging over your head on that one.
1: I know. You're, I know. you're, you're,
0: you're saying that these other guys are, are scary because they are more competent autocrats. They're competent autocrats, yeah.
1: exactly. They're competent. They have impulse control. They present better. They don't have so much of the personal baggage. They're what we should be focused on. We should. We should. We should be more frightened of Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, or Ron DeSantis than we are of Donald Trump.
0: Ooh. Well, I'm I'm not wild about any of them. Okay, so let's switch over to the Democrats. The squad progressives had a mixed record last night. The race that I was watching the most closely was down in Texas, where uh, Representative Cuellar, he was the last remaining pro-life Democrat in the House of Representatives. And the progressives went all out to defeat him nancy pelosi and the leadership of the house went all in to defend him and it looks like he has squeaked out a victory in other areas though progressives have ousted blue dog democrats so i don't know do you see any pattern here it's uh, i mean i i think it's safe to say that the blue dog democrat is very very much an endangered species despite that victory in texas but that was an indication that you can survive under certain circumstances
1: Yeah, Texas on the whole is going to be really interesting over not only this issue in the general and, you know, apologies in advance for all the, well, I acknowledge that I'm going to get flack for that because this seems completely cynical, but you can see the way that Texas is going to become ground zero for a whole bunch of issues that have huge, huge electoral consequences like now the gun issue in the governor's race where you suddenly have Greg Abbott, a guy who's been saying we need more guns here versus Beto O'Rourke, a guy who has fashioned himself as the gun reform guy. And so I think that there are all these little microcosms of national uh, debates happening in Texas. And I think in the case of that race, I think it's hard to say how that race would play out in a different month or year and how that race I think I think that the timing around the row leak is really important because Cisneros uh, I think probably would not have done as well as she did last night were it not for all the fervor in recent weeks over the abortion issue I think in general, if Democrats could get into a headspace of nominating more moderate candidates, that would be a good thing because Democrats are bound for their own reckoning. They have avoided their own reckoning because the reckoning happening on the Republican side is just so very, very bad.
0: Okay. So um, I'm going to get much more flack than you're going to get for, for it. Okay. Because um, let's go back to the beginning of our conversation where you made a really good point about, you know, if we were a rational and reasonable political universe, you know, how we would resolve issues like abortion and guns, that there would be some sort of reasonable compromises. I would like to see that kind of a debate. Unfortunately, in Texas, what's going to happen though, is that uh, Republicans and Greg Abbott are going to run? You know, as uh, as supporters of the Second Amendment, they're not going to apologize. They're not going to back off. They're not going to move. But Beto O'Rourke has gone pretty far in saying that yes, he would take away guns from people. Yeah, this is the thing. There's a montage out there that I I, I played a couple of years ago where all of the supporters of gun control said, well, no, we're not talking about taking away your gun. We're not talking about taking away your gun. We're not talking about taking away your gun. And then there's Beto O'Rourke saying, yes, God damn it, we are gonna take away your guns. So I don't know that that's gonna play in Texas the way everyone outside of Texas right now today thinks it's going to play. I actually think that this school shooting and Beto O'Rourke's position on it might actually end up hurting him which, again, is another sign of the insanity of our times. But I think he's taken the one position that if you actually wanted to be elected governor of Texas, um, you should not have taken. But that's my take.
1: Yeah. Well, Democrats are very good at letting crises go to waste. And maybe, 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 maybe there's a way for the O'Rourke campaign to walk that back a little bit or just say, you know, look. Overton window, but here's the actual stuff that we want to see happen, to be determined, I think.
0: Uh, to be determined. Okay, so anything else you are looking at this week? Um, I'm, part of the problem is that there's so much going on, it's uh, it, it's hard to keep up with it all. I take you do think that the row issue is going to make a difference in the midterms, or how much of a difference will it make, do you think?
1: I think it's hard to say. I think here's some more cynicism coming at you. I think it would be, and the good news is this won't happen anyway, but the Democrats push for federal reform on abortion is really stupid. I think this is a chance for Democrats to embrace the notion of federalism and talk about doing it state by state, People don't talk nearly enough about control of these state legislatures. Those are critically important elections. Those are critically important elections ahead of 2024 because these state legislatures are the bodies in general that decide whether or not to certify election results. And so I think that Democrats, and it may be too late, but I think the Roe issue is one of those rare issues where they really could uh drive turnout down ballot on the issue of abortion but they have to they have to start talking about it more reasonably i'm a pro choice person but i can completely understand why people tune out and feel pretty appalled and shocked when democrats say things like there can be no reasonable limitations on abortion. You know, that's like Democrats, it's like, you're so close. They get so close, and then they say a thing. And I think your your Beto example is a good one, actually, right? They just like go a little too over the line and game over.
0: Well, and also this ought to be relatively politically easy because the Republicans are overreaching themselves on exceptions for rape and incest and the and the health of the mother. And, you know, that's that's where they are vulnerable. That's where they can drive a wedge. And instead, um, the vast majority of the comments that I get are are pushback, even when I just simply point out that every public opinion poll shows overwhelming opposition to abortions in the third trimester. And what is the reaction of progressives. It's not to say, okay, well, let's focus on early abortion. I mean, let's focus on these exceptions. It's like, no, let's explain why you need third trimester abortions, which is taking an issue where the polls suggest you have fertile ground and going to one where you are absolutely sure to lose.
1: Yeah, it's that I think is completely right. But it's also that Democrats as a political apparatus, culturally, socially, they can't accept just getting people to agree with them on a policy plank. They also require, as part of their litmus test, that the audience, in this case voters, agree with them on the extrapolation. So the the policy plank in the abortion issue is like, do you or do you not legally support safe access to, you know, support legal safe access to abortion. Vast majority of people do. We've noted the things like reasonable limitations, all of that. But then Democrats also cannot just say, great, then we're the party for you. Tick D, 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 D -D on the ballot. They also feel like they have to bring voters along to the idea that Republicans are trying to control women. And this extrapolation about the implications of the abortion debate, that this is about controlling women. I don't think most Americans think that the Republican Party is trying to control women. That, I mean, it may be that the result of a ban on abortion or the result on, uh, you know, reasonable access to contraceptives has downstream negative effects on women. But they always insist on talking about these issues and the systems in a way that is so alienating to most voters. It's like they cannot help themselves. I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall all the time as a former Republican who now, generally speaking, because of these crazy times, is trying to help Democrats.
0: Well, we will have plenty of time to talk about that later and uh, throughout the year. Lucy Caldwell, once again, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast on on such a busy news day. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Charlie.
0: Hey, gang, I just wanted to drop in to say thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped to underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters, like my daily morning shots, but really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall, but... We do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network, like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group podcast and Mona Charon's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to the slash Charlie to claim your free trial today. That's thebulwark.com slash Charlie. Thanks. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. to we'll do this all over again.